Good afternoon from the Wilson Center in Washington, D.C., and welcome again to Hindsight Upfront. I'm Mark Green, President and CEO. Our first episode in this series on Ukraine took on Moscow's false assertion that NATO had somehow promised the Russians wouldn't expand, or promised the Russians that NATO wouldn't expand eastward. Our second featured two Senate leaders who offered their impressions from a recent visit to Ukraine and why they co-authored the recent Lend-Lease legislation for military assistance to the Zelensky government. A third featured a candid interview with the Minister of State and Germany's Foreign Office, addressing both some of what had been perceived as a diplomatic gap between Washington and Berlin and the importance of NATO unity. You can access all of these episodes in a treasure trove of research and scholarship about Russia and Ukraine by going to the wilsoncenter.org backslash hindsight Ukraine. As we gather today, Moscow has not yet sent in forces that it's amassed along the border. In just a few hours, President Biden will address the nation once again. And yet, in so many ways, an assault on Ukraine has been going on for some time. Cyber attacks, military exercises in Belarus and elsewhere obviously meant to intimidate and the weaponization of information not to mention Russian occupation of Crimea and the portions of the Donbass region. Congress and the administration are really united in their goal of deterring an incursion, but in some ways isn't something underway already. Tough questions, complicated answers. Fortunately, we have one of the sharpest thinkers on national security, defense policy, and the changing nature of our threats and our needs. Our guest today is Michelle Flournoy, former Undersecretary of Defense for Policy and top defense advisor in the Obama administration. She also co-founded the Center for a New American Security, where she now chairs the board and West Exec Advisors. Michelle Flournoy, welcome to the Wilson Center. It's good to have you. Thanks so much, Mark. It's great to be with you. So uh, you heard me lay out a little bit of it. So where are we in your opinion? So um, we are on the brink of a potential war uh, in Europe. Uh, we've seen Russia amass the largest military force in Europe uh, for potentially aggressive purposes since World War II. Um, it's, it's, there's a chance that, you know, we might still have some diplomatic breakthrough and a de-escalation of the crisis, but I think that is becoming, with every passing day, increasingly remote. Um, you have basically Russia with forces on um, three fronts um, in Belarus conducting a so-called military exercise, but poised to come down from the north towards Kiev. Um, you have a um, huge amount of Russian forces amassed on the border with eastern Ukraine um, near the Donbass region. And you also have um, naval forces and amphibious ships with troops aboard uh, amassed in the Black Sea ready, ready to come up. Um, from that direction. Uh, so huge amount of pressure, plus um, things we've never seen deployed in an exercise, like Iskander missiles, which are longer range missiles that can actually hold NATO capitals at risk. Lots of airborne use units, special operations, field ho hospitals being mo moved forward to the front. So this is a very worrisome situation. And, and you know, I, I hope I'm wrong, but my assessment is that Putin knows what he wants. He wants to um, either uh, uh, wring concessions from the Zelensky government to uh, a binding promise that Ukraine will never join NATO, 
or he wants to put in a government that is more friendly to Russia that will be willing to make that promise. And whether he gets it by diplomacy or through the use of force, I think he is fairly determined to do that. As we've been talking about, uh, the Biden approach to all of this has been actually quite distinctive. Uh, we've seen the quick release of information almost by the day, at least in the last couple of weeks. Every time uh, Putin makes a move or at least sends a signal, someone from the Biden administration comes forward and lays it out for the American public. We've heard talk about, well, the cyber attacks, obviously, but a false flag operation, the numbers that are being amassed, the readiness of the troop posture of the Russians. Uh, isn't that unusual? And what do you think the Biden administration's accomplishing with this? It is unusual. As you know, Mark, sitting in the Situation Room, there's always a big debate about, do you sh reveal the intelligence and potentially compromise sources and methods? Do you hold it back? What can we say unclassified? All of that is a big debate. But I think they have decided to be in a proactive posture because one thing we know about Putin, he is a master of disinformation and misinformation and creating untrue, you know, making lies seem like new facts. And so I think they've decided as a matter of policy that every time he sort of sets the, the stage for some kind of manufactured provocation or misinformation, they're going to knock it down with facts and the truth and evidence as much as they can possibly share. And I think they've done a really good job of that. And you can expect to see more of that as this crisis unfolds. So Putin may still move forward, but he won't be able to characterize it as a Ukrainian in invasion or incursion on, on Russia. He will certainly try, but I think far fewer people will believe him. Unfortunately, there's a real risk that his own population will believe him because he's got such tight control over the information that most Russians hear. Um, do you think some of this is a reaction to what we saw with the annexation of Crimea. I mean, we obviously saw the mobilization of information by Putin and Russian irregulars moving in, and then lo and behold, one day they declared through this false phony election that this was part of Russia. Is this a response to that? I think it's, it's sort of a once burned, twice shy kind of situation where we've seen this playbook before. This one's a little different, obviously, but I think the administration's very attuned to what Putin is, is up to, and they, they are reading the signs, and they are not taking any chances of being fooled or being unprepared um, or what have you. I think that's likely if he does actually come into Ukraine with military forces, I think you're going to also see a different approach to sanctions. Remember back in 2014, it was very incremental, sort of as he took greater, more and more aggressive steps, we kind of turned up the heat gradually. I think this time they're likely to take a different approach, which is go big and then ratchet down if he pulls back or if he complies with, with, with the conditions that we set. So I think it's going to be a very different approach based on lessons learned from from the last chapter of this story. And uh, do you think it's in part a reaction to the experience of Afghanistan? Well, I think the experience of Afghanistan, I'm sure you know many of the same people are involved, certainly on the White House and at the senior levels in the National Security Council uh, and so forth. And I think you know they are 
uh, they are staying on top of this. They are looking at every detail. They've pulled together a very extensive interagency planning, and, and we've just uh, read recently in the press some wargaming and, and scenario tabletop work so that they really think through the different contingencies and what they need to be prepared for. Because there's all kinds of challenges here. I mean, if again, if Putin goes in, you're going to see massive refugee flows. We have to be prepared for that. You're going to have probably a massive cyber element of the attack that tries to take down the communications system in Ukraine and possibly even cyber attacks on NATO allies and even the U.S. You're going to maybe the, the Russians may have their own economic playbook trying to deny critical exports of rare earths or things that we depend on them for. Um, they'll certainly use that play the energy card with with Europe. So there's a lot of work to be done to think through how to how this is going to go go and also how to mitigate risks and keep and most importantly, keep NATO and the transatlantic alliance unified in how we're responding to all of this. Yeah, I, I had mentioned uh, the information releases by Biden as being a distinctive feature of the Biden response, but just as distinctive is the um, the amount of time that the administration is, has uh, spent intending to allies and, and reinforcing uh, as much as possible that, that projected unity. I mean, it, it, there clearly are a few differences along the way, but nonetheless, the president spent a great deal of time in, in trying to reinforce that uh, that sense of unity in, in the face of uh, Putin's aggression. And the president and his whole team, I mean, they have been working the phones, they've been on airplanes, they have no, no European ally can complain that they weren't, you know, deeply consulted and kept in the know. I mean, they've really worked on this hard. And I think, you know, at best, it's going to pay off to, you know, a shared approach, a unified approach to things like sanctions that will cause some pain in Europe, will cause some pain here. Um, and to the extent we have some differences, I think those are going to be managed in a way that those differences don't undercut, you know, the the very um, forceful approach that the United States is going to take to on the non-military side. And maybe that's a reaction to Afghanistan as well. I, I think one of the the criticisms we heard from some of our allies in Afghanistan is at least parts of it were um, a surprise to them, or perhaps they weren't kept in touch as much as possible. Clearly here, again, it's maybe, as you said, some of the same people we all learn as we go, spending a lot of time making sure that the information flow is, is steady. I think that's right. The other thing that's ironic about this is, you know, one of Putin's greatest fears is a strong NATO with a strong military posture in the frontline states of the Baltics and Poland and Romania and so forth. And the irony is that this crisis that he's manufactured has actually pulled NATO together, reinvigorated its sense of purpose and importance and, and buy-in across the board and will create a more robust NATO posture facing Russia. So, I mean, he's managed to create his own worst nightmare. Um, in pursuing this course of action. Well, let's uh, let's all hope it works, right? Uh, um, let me, something I read earlier today as I was getting ready for this, there was a piece on Axios in which an author referred to this as the first TikTok war. Mm -hmm. In other words, you're seeing both from perhaps Putin's uh, 
direct forces a sharing of videos, but also from citizens both ways, both mm -hmm. both Russians and Ukrainians sharing video clips of troop buildup and vulnerabilities. Is this what we're going to see going forward, not just here, but perhaps uh, in all forms of uh, uh, of conflict and, and defense uh, mobilization? I think that that is a change. You know, even back in 2014, we saw a lot of people posting pictures on Facebook. Now we're getting you know, the more advanced version of videos on, on TikTok. And it, it speaks to the fact that we live in this information saturated world where it's very difficult for a government or a military to move in a stealthy way because there's so many sources of um, capturing that and sharing it publicly in a completely non-unclassified way. And, and I think that is bolstering the administration's ability to be more transparent, share more information about what is happening because they have, they probably have a number of unclassified sources that have been validated and verified that they can put out with no, with no trouble at all. But I think this is a, 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 an enduring feature of the future environment for sure. Well, it, it certainly has its advantages in terms of from from the administration perspective, perhaps being able to pierce through some fog. On the other hand, you have no control over it either. So it goes both ways and uh, perhaps it hastens the sense of um, of concern uh, and menace as 130,000 Russians do move to the border. There's also a huge risk of disinformation so put you know filtered into those youtubes you know that are available um you know russian disinformation russian misinformation doctored videos which is now quite you know emerging as quite possible so literally manufacturing videos that misrepresent the facts like here's a video of some you know claimed provocation by ukrainians that didn't actually happen um, so I think we have to be mindful of that as well. Uh, another piece I saw from David Ignatius, uh, again, we're trying to look at how this all works out. Uh, what are the U.S. goals? What are the uh, things that they can point to as, as, as uh, reasonably achievable? And one thing he, he said that I thought was interesting is that um, he said, first off, if, if Russia goes in, Ukraine will largely fight alone. On the other hand, Russia's problems won't be just Russia's uh, and won't be just Ukraine's. He said there's the sense that U.S. officials hope that there will be a Ukrainian porcupine too difficult for the Russian economy and government to swallow. Is yeah. that what the objective is in many ways is to, if Russians do move in with tanks and troops, to make it as painful and as difficult as possible for Moscow to try to maintain any kind of a grip on those parts of Ukraine they roll into? Absolutely. I, I think it's really important for us to think of these this in sort of different time frames. I mean, in the short term, if Russia comes in with its full military might, Ukraine will not be able to stop them, right? So they will have some tactical victories and put, be able to potentially put Kiev under siege and put huge pressure on the government, maybe even topple the government. But that's not the end of it, right? That's the beginning. Now they're in there and they're you have to think about the longer game. 
first of all, um, even if just 10% of the Ukrainian population decides to fight this, there will, that will be a heck of an insurgency. And you can be sure that Western powers, at least some number of them, will be supporting that insurgency as much as possible. You will have sanction, massive sanctions put in place, energy, financial, uh, travel, export controls, um, maybe even things like sanctioning in the insurance industry. So Russia, sh Russian ships, Russian transport, they're it would hampering their trade that, you know, that, that would not um, be able to proceed as normal. So there's, there'll be a very heavy economic burden. There'll be complete um, diplomatic isolation. You can expect NATO to meet, EU to meet, Putin to be unwelcome anywhere in the world except maybe, you know, meeting with Xi in Beijing, right? So um, this is the longer game, you know, if you, if you end up with Putin versus the West, it's not going to be a pretty picture and it's not a winning game for him. So, you know, I hope that we don't have to go through the, those early days and see this invasion play out in Ukraine, but I don't think Putin's going to ultimately achieve his objectives because I think we will stand as a transatlantic community and more broadly, our allies around the world don't want to see Putin succeed. No one wants to see in the 21st century an authoritarian government be able to overthrow a sovereign, however imperfect democracy, but a democracy, you know, and, and, and succeed. I mean, that's a terrible threat to the rules-based order that we have worked so hard for decades to put in place. And uh, those of us who have been to Ukraine and been to Kyiv and seen the monuments to the so-called, or they call themselves the Heavenly 100, those who sacrifice themselves to bring about democracy in the face of Yanukovych, there's simply no doubting the character of the Ukrainian people or their courage. And uh, should Putin decide to invade, um, we can expect uh, Ukrainians to fight, fight hard, fight courageously, and keep doing so. And I would hope that Putin, before he pulls the trigger, you know, would take a lesson from history. I mean, find me, you know, the Soviets dealt with this in Afghanistan. We dealt with it in Afghanistan. When you have an insurgency that is committed and has external support, in some cases sanctuary, it's very, very hard to defeat. So, I mean, he, you know, he shouldn't make the mistake that some that I would argue that people like Secretary Rumsfeld and others made going into Iraq, thinking you can waltz in, topple a government, put somebody you like in place and waltz out and it will all be fine. Didn't go that way. And that's not how Ukraine will go. Um, Putin will pay a very heavy price and he needs to think about that before he makes the decision. Uh, what more should the administration be doing right now? You know, I think they're, um, you know, leaning forward hard. I'm really glad to hear the president is about to speak. Um, I think um, continuing to stay arm in arm with our allies. Um, uh, I, I would hope that we're thinking about not only the large sanctions package, but how, how on the cyber front, almost certainly cyber will become a dimension of this. How can we back up Ukraine and help restore, you know, give them some resilience under attack. What can we do to make sure that our systems are as resilient as possible if there's some kind of retaliation? Are there things that we can do with deniability 
that would make it really complicate the Russians' ability to sustain their forces forward. Remember, they're going to be away from home. They need to have logistics and supplies and all of that. How can we use non-kinetic means to try to uh, ensure that those systems don't work very well? Um, so these are the kinds of policy questions that the team's going to have to grapple with. I'm sure they're, they're working through all of this in detail. So uh, what you've just laid out is making the best of a bad situation. Yes. So I guess the question is, as we sit here, in your mind, what does success look like? And maybe uh, more fairly, uh, give me the range of success because there's so many variables and unknowns as we as we gather right now. Yeah, I mean, real success would be convincing Putin upfront that he can't succeed or the cost is too high, um, and so that he we find a way to de-escalate this situation um, and negotiate, you know, something with him. Um, but I, I think that's, again, I think increasingly unlikely. I think success, um, if he goes in, is to prevent him from um, a sort of uh, bringing Ukraine permanently into the Russian orbit um, and to ultimately forcing the withdrawal of his troops um, uh, as, you know, you know after, as the scenario uh, plays out. And the restoration of, you know, a Ukrainian government that's chosen by the Ukrainian people um, and, and so forth. I do think there's lots of lessons we can learn even now from the crisis as it's unfolded. We need to work harder on reducing Europe's energy dependence on Russia. We need to work harder on cyber resilience, um, ours and those of, of other countries that we're partnered with. We need to think about other means of deterrence um, beyond simply sending in our own military, conventional military forces, which you know President Biden has taken off the table. Um, and, and we need to be thinking hard about how do we avoid miscalculation? Something we haven't talked about, you're gonna, if this goes forward, you're gonna have Russian forces and NATO forces right up against each other. Um, I don't think NATO forces want, are planning to go in but, you know, imagine a, a Russian incursion into the Baltic airspace or something that happens in the Baltic, uh, the Black Sea or what have you. There are all kinds of, there's room for accident, room for miscalculation. We have to be, have to be very, very careful that those, anything like that leads to escalation. I was struck in my conversation with the Minister of State from Germany uh, he cast all of this as a test of the strength of economic sanctions as a deterrence force. Uh, the Germans obviously believe that that is, at the end of the day, the best chance for success. But isn't this really a, a true test of that model? If it doesn't work, if Putin decides to go in any way, um, can we say that as a deterrent force, economic sanctions have failed? or they're insufficient by themselves? Yeah, the problem is, you know, I think because in 2014, he weathered the sanctions pretty well, um, he probably thinks, overestimates of his ability to weather these. I think this will be very different. I think this package will be much more robust, but it, the problem is it's gonna take time for them to bite and for him to really feel the pain. So 
you know, there's two types of deterrence. There's deterrence that convinces your adversary that he can't possibly succeed. That's by denial. Um, and then there's deterrence by cost imposition. And sometimes that cost imposition has to be experienced to, uh, to, to, to work. And so I think um, that's the situation we're in. We may not be able to deter the invasion, but perhaps we can convince him to reverse it. Do you think that, that perhaps Putin is calculating that, just what you've said, that um, the, the sanctions, the cumulative effect of the sanctions, because it takes time, the, U, uh, the West, obviously led by the U.S., but the West will lose its resolve? And at some point, the pain of those sanctions, where clearly there'll be pain in Europe, and yes, we'll feel pain. At some point, citizens will cause us to walk away or back down. Yeah, I think he's miscalculating that he can divide Europe within Europe and divide us, the United States, from Europe. Um, I think he's underestimating the solidarity um, in this situation, and he's miscalculating. But I do think that's his assumption. And that, in many ways, will be, um, if he does move in, maybe that'll be the determinative factor in this. Whether or not we're able to, and it will take work, we're able to maintain that unity and that yeah. consensus and that resolve. Uh, so we're at an interesting moment. We've got information wars. We've got cyber attacks. Figuring out how you respond to cyber attacks. Figuring out how you get one step in front of uh, of information wars. Rapidly changing, but obviously uh, we're all learning a lot. And as uh, we've discussed at the Wilson Center, hindsight up front, we try to learn those lessons as close to real time as we can. Uh, Michelle, I'm very grateful for the time that you've spent with us. I've learned a lot. And uh, let's hope that we'll be able to celebrate uh, uh, Mr. Putin coming to his senses and realizing that this is not a porcupine that he should want to swallow. I, I certainly hope so. Thank you. Thanks very much. And again, to our, to our viewers, if you'd like to learn more about Hindsight Upfront Ukraine, please go to our website. You'll find a whole treasure trove of materials. And our guest today has been former Undersecretary and Defense Policy Advisor, Michelle Flournoy. Thanks to everyone. Thank you. Thank you.